when I expose myself more to the patient side, that has made me so much better of an embryologist because on a busy day, when on the lab side, you, all you see is you know patient names and egg numbers, you're able to slow down and say, okay, this is so much more than 20 eggs that I need to do Ixion. This is somebody's probably couple year long struggle, pain, finances, fear, and it makes you slow down and always do your best. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today, I'm joined by Sean Reed. Sean is an embryologist. He is the Embryology Technical Supervisor at Utah Fertility Center. He has his master's in embryology and andrology that he completed at Eastern Virginia Medical School. He's been an embryologist for five years. We're going to talk about the scarcity of embryologists, if that's generational, of what that job landscape is and what that means for the field, including success rates. Personally, Sean has a five-year-old daughter who's rad, who's his best friend. I can hear the audible awes right now. <laughs> Sean Reed, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Ah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, it's cool that you're on because, to be honest, you're the first guest that I've had, and this might be episode 30 by the time that this comes up. We've done at least 20, and I haven't had a single guest from the lab on. So <laughs> long overdue, yeah. you're here to rep. And I have to admit that I neglect the lab in a lot of ways in the content that we do. Our job is to bring patients in and to keep them. That's what our job is, to help practices acquire and retain patients. And so the lab is a huge part of that because if the, there wasn't a successful lab behind it, there wouldn't be those two functions to fulfill. But the nature of what you do isn't immediate in that. And so, or at least immediately visible. And so we neglect it a lot. Do you feel that way in other ways that the and I, I am saying this because you are a redheaded man. Is the, <laughs> is, is the IVF lab the redheaded stepchild sometimes <laughs> of the practice? <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I think that is a, an issue that a lot of clinics have faced. And when I go to conferences, you hear a lot of those, those same issues coming up where your lab is carrying out very vital functions for your clinic, for the success of your clinic. And I mean, we're the, we're the kind of the wizards that are hiding behind the curtain. People don't really see what we're doing throughout the day. Patients don't really see us. Your clinic staff probably doesn't see us very much, except for the occasional time that they, they poke their heads in with a problem or a question. And so, yeah, we're in there working really hard all day long. And then if you're not really being seen, you know, it's going to kind of hurt your feelings a little. I think that's human nature. 
it's fascinating because without the lab, there is no IVF. There is no what we do, but it isn't the the same thing as interfacing with the the patients every single day. And so sometimes it 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 feels like it can be siloed, even though it is inherent and essentially at the core of everything that we do in art. And I want to talk a bit about the the people that are in these roles. And this is where I really found our conversations to be interesting because if you talk to electricians or plumbers or just about anybody in the skilled trade, let's just call it the skilled trades as a general blanket category. That group is largely older in age and largely close to retirement. And it's already a group that when we're talking about electricians, plumbers, heavy machine operators, that they already are in demand relative to supply and demand. I had never considered that for the IVF lab until I talked to you. Is it the same generational dynamic? Talk to us a little bit about one, just the, the scarcity of good embryologist relative demand of how supply is growing relative to how quickly demand is growing. And are we seeing a similar dynamic that we are in the skilled trades or is it different? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting topic, I think. So one caveat is I've only worked at one place. I've only worked at Utah Fertility Center. So my experience, my personal experience has only been there. Utah Fertility Center has only been open for like seven years or so. So it's it's younger, it's newer. The the staff, the lab staff is is pretty much younger. I think every generation always thinks that the next generation is going to be the one that like blows up the world and they're terrible and they're awful, whatever. But I think because of the the big technological boom in the last 20 years, there's a like a really big generational gap from say our grandparents and parents to the millennial generation. Millennials, they speak a whole nother language. It's like a whole different organization that they that they understand. And when I've talked to other embryologists from from other labs and even embryologists that we've hired from other labs, I do think that that generational gap is a problem because first off, I, I totally respect the first generation of embryologists. I mean, IVF has only been around for like 40 years. It's still relatively really young. But the OGs of IVF, I like to call them the original gangsters, they did a great job of laying the foundation of IVF. They got the technology to where it's at now, where the success is is really good. But it seems like in some labs, passing that flame on to the next generation, there's a bit of resistance. And I don't know if it's because labs are just generally really busy and it's hard to train new people or if it's a bit of a stubborn thing i've heard of other labs that when they when they hire people on the training just takes forever and like you were asking is there a big demand like there's a huge demand for embryologists fertility is becoming more and more i don't i don't want to use the word popular but it's just becoming more mainstream more available and clinics want to grow and like you're saying you said it, I didn't say it, but the lab is insanely important to the success of a clinic. So if a clinic wants to grow, you have to grow your lab. Well, let's pretend that this isn't even 
generational in passing the torch yet, although I definitely want to have that conversation. If, it, if it's just how demand for services is growing, and let's pretend the OGs or maybe it's the second generation that is there now, let's pretend they're not retiring. Even if that isn't the case, is there still a demand issue that we're not catching up with in terms of filling the need in the lab for positions? I think it's very possible. So I think one of the big topics that have become popular at conferences, just at PCRS a couple of weeks ago, one of the big questions was, you know, how do we keep keep our lab staff how do we keep them happy because there is such a demand that in in bigger cities where there's lots of clinics if you're not keeping your embryologists happy like they'll go elsewhere they you know they've got to find somewhere else but is there you know are there a lot of undergrads that are coming out and wanting to go into embryology i don't know that's something that i i think is interesting because this profession is it's pretty obscure like it's 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 pretty random like when you when I tell people I'm an embryologist, like I'm probably the first embryologist that they've ever met, you know? So you do think that the issue of being able to fill the positions is largely tied into this passing of the torch generationally? Yeah. Where's the price? You said there's a, there's a resistance to passing the torch <laughs> or this torch being passed. Where is the resistance? Is it the resistance in the the generation that is it the established generation passing the torch to incoming embryologists or is it a reluctance of incoming embryologists to be able to embrace the process and the work? I don't know. I don't know if we want to get so much into the the millennial issue. I think for the most part, like labs are, are staffed with excellent embryologists. Like when I meet embryologists from other places, they are all excellent and they're passionate about what they do. And my experience where I work, the the older generation of embryologists, they have been so good at training me and they're still passionate about the field and talking about the exciting new things. But I, my guess is that some places when they get these really young embryologists that come in and they don't see that passion, I don't know, they may not be as willing to to really pass on that flame, pass on that knowledge. I mean, we got to go there. Millennials, one problem is they they just, they aren't as, as passionate about what they do. Yeah. How old are you? 31. I'm a millennial. And that's why I've been for so long, I've been so hesitant to jump on the train of of bashing millennials because technically I am one, but even millennials that are just five years younger than I am, man, it's a whole different generation. And there's definitely pros to them. I'm not going to say it's all, it's all bad, but what I've observed with them is it seems to me that it's more important to them that what they're doing seems interesting to other people than they are actually interested in what they're doing. And that presents a problem in all professions. Like fertility requires a lot of dedication in every aspect on the clinical side and the lab side. You really have to put in the time to to learn it all, to be good at it. And then while you're doing it, like it requires a lot of efforts, a lot of hard work. And so you get a millennial in there that, you know, the, it's kind of more important to them to tell people that they're an embryologist and that they do really cool work than they are actually interested 
in the work. Like I was saying, the, the OGs of, of IVF, they understand the science. They understand the cryobiology behind vitrification. I wonder if you ask some of the younger embryologists, how do you like, how does vitrification work? They may start rattling off the protocol. Like, well, you put it in this for five minutes and then this eight, and then it goes into liquid nitrogen. Like, okay, cool. But can, do you know the actual biology behind vitrification? They may not know the answer. And yeah, so that's where I think you kind of get that, that, that generational gap and, and who's going to carry the flame. Where's the innovation going to come from in the future? If I'm understanding correctly, is your hypothesis that the established generation of embryologists have always been so motivated, so motivated by the discovery and the advancement of the science that they would understand the cryobiology behind vitrification from the beginning of their career just be or in, in their case as vitrification was developed just because that's where they're coming from they're coming from this place of discovery and advancement and are you saying that the incoming embryologists don't not because they haven't gotten there yet but because they're more in it to fill the position because that's what they do and maybe even have more appearance motivations. But I guess what I'm trying to ask is how much of it is just because they don't know the the cryobiology behind vitrification or the science behind other aspects of the lab simply because they're at the beginning of their career versus the ethos of the persona. It's probably the younger generation can kind of relax more because, like I said, the first generation of embryologists, they did such a good job of laying that foundation. The first generation of embryologists, they they had to constantly be thinking of ways to improve, to get better success rates. And so for a long time, they did slow freezing and then it advanced to vitrification. And that's people, that's that's scientists in the lab, like trying to find ways to be better. Now with vitrification... The, the, the survival of embryos from freezing and thawing is like 90 plus percent. There isn't much of a need to like think, oh, how can I improve this? It's like, man, it's really dang good right now. And so the next generation can come in and just kind of rest on that. It's like, hey, the, the protocol is great. Vitrification's great. Why do I need to, you know, sit down and read some boring textbook about cryobiology when I can learn the protocol in a couple of weeks and I can be really good at freezing embryos. Sure, but that would be to say, if that's the case of just when something is extremely efficient, that that is a deterrent to human advancement. I guess, you know, we wouldn't have developed faster modes of transportation or better forms of communication. It seems that any standard of technology for a generation is heads and shoulders better than what it was for the the previous generation in almost every category. And if that alone were a means to quell human motivation, then we wouldn't be advancing any further. Do you see a lack of, do you think that that is the reason, if there is a complacency, that's the reason, well, vitrification already has gotten us to 90% or better rates, as opposed to looking for all of the other things that could be solved in the lab in terms of efficiencies or or anything else. Yeah, it's a 
I don't know. I, I, that's where I'd like to, it's interesting that this is getting talked about more at, at conferences is how, you know, this next generation, how are we, how are we, like if I asked you 10 problems in the lab and you and I spent an afternoon, we could find 10 problems, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So isn't there just the natural human pursuit to say, I want to solve one of these, or I think we could solve one of these, or bringing the discussion to rally around a few of those points until they do get solved, and then we have more problems to solve. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the question would be, are there embryologists coming in that are capable of solving those problems too because the the first generation a lot of them did get advanced degrees masters and and phds and to be an embryologist you you really only need a bachelor's degree with enough credits in in biology and so and that's where i'm that's where i was kind of talking about where like because they don't understand the the basics of the science like even if they did see the problem like they may not be capable of you know figuring it out and and improving those issues. Let's unpack the cultural, the generational culture a little bit more, because I think you and I are in a unique position to do that in that we are professionals that have been in our field for a little bit. We're still on the younger half of the spectrum. And so we've, we've seen generational attitudes towards us. We now are not we are no longer the youngest. And I think it, this will be useful to explore this a little bit because you mentioned that even the millennials that are five years younger, you mentioned, are different than those that the older half. And let's call us the older half of millennials. I'm 33, you're 31. And let's say we've got an older half and a younger half. Is the cultural difference that great in your opinion? Or again, is it just age and inexperience. How much of it is a generational culture and how much of it is simply the time that they've been around? Yeah, man, I really think it's a totally different culture. I think I blame social media. I think social media has like rotted people's brains. It was probably two years ago that I had my first big experience with like the millennial, millennial younger. Um, I went to this guy's birthday party. I knew like two people that were going to be there. And I was like, sure, I'll go to this party. Like I'm always down to make new friends. It was this, this like fiesta themed birthday party. Everyone got there and it was a lot of fun at first. Like everyone was wearing fake mustaches and drinking tequila and it was a great time. And everyone had their phones out, which like, that's normal. Okay. People are taking videos. And, you know, girls are like, oh, this song's coming on. We're about to do something really spontaneous. So take a video of us. And then after about an hour or so, the the mood switched. We're kind of like got quieter and everyone was on their phones. Like I think everyone was, you know, they were, they were doing the filters. They were putting the funny comments on their videos and then posting on Snapchat, Instagram stories, whatever it was. And then like an hour and a half in, the party died. Like 70% of the people just left. The guy's own sister left without saying goodbye. He's like, hey, where's uh, where's my sister? And everyone's like, oh, I think she, I think she left, man. And that's where like it, it blew my mind. Like everyone, like they were really just there to post on social media. I mean, I'm sure there's a part of it that they were there and they had a good time, but the number one goal was to look interesting that night. 
to their followers on Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it was. And that's where it's like, wow, like I honestly can't even like connect with people that are five years younger. Like that's not that much younger. It's so much more than just, oh, I don't understand what music you guys listen to. It's like, honestly, like I can't be in the same room. (laughs) Honestly, like they're weird. They're really weird. I just don't see how that's not happening among our cohort of older millennials. And frankly, among Generation Xers and the fastest growing group of selfie takers is 50-year-old women. I want to drive this a little bit more because I I remember being at the EIVF conference a few years ago, and there was a speaker that was talking about millennials, and he's talking about a lot of the things that you were talking about and the jokes about man buns and high ceilings and fancy drinks, et cetera. And everybody's laughing and nodding in agreement. And I walk around the room and I'm just counting. And I'm while this speaker is talking. And then after the speaker was done, I said, okay, so everybody's laughing and nodding when we're talking about social media and the cell phone addictions. There's 141 people in this room 124 of you have your cell phones in front of you on the desk. And so I really want to, I I just think that we have to talk about when we assign something as, okay, this is something that they do. And I do not discount that as one gets younger, cell phone addiction could even be more severe or different behaviors can be more prominent. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's so prominent among older people, I guess, which we're now considering ourselves among. That <laughs> I just I, I think it's remiss to say that's something that they're doing. I, I think that there's so much more leadership required on our end. I remember back in like 2006 or 2007 when Facebook was really starting to get popular. I like I had this thought where I was like, you know what, this is becoming kind of a weird thing that people are really getting obsessed with. Like, I think if I can somewhat separate myself from this, I think I stand a chance of really standing out amongst my, my peers. And for a long time, I mean, like us, we, we dabble in social media, we got Facebook, we post on Instagram and it's a normal amount. But for the last 10 years or so, like I've really kept my head down and and worked hard and and focused on getting to where I can be. And now like I'm only 31, technical supervisor of an embryology lab. Like I feel like I'm becoming successful. And it's because I made that conscious effort to not buy into those those just time wasting things. And like you said, I I wonder if like if you got a cell phone at a certain age, like if there's an age cutoff and that's where we see that really difference in yeah we all use cell phones we all get on social media but if you had a cell phone when you were like 12 years old and younger maybe that's where like this weird psychological thing happens where yeah i mean the younger generation their social media it's such a john this is exactly what other generations say about us (laughs) (laughs) oh i mean we've got our problems no doubt i mean i heck i'll grow a man bun (laughs) 
Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. Where I want to be productive in my criticism of generational analysis is that we're getting the best of both worlds. And I think now that we're in an opportunity to, to criticize the generation before, we've, of course, criticized the generation after. And every generation has done this. I think it's extraordinarily important to always consider that I, I heard someone say this, which was every generation is important, but the next generation is always the most important. And to me, that is the answer if we're thinking about it really deeply and can apply it in our clinics and labs to properly passing down the torch. And if we criticize superficially, which I don't think that you're doing here, I think you've got a real concern here. I think I hear a ton of superficial criticism. I think we neglect that responsibility in passing down the torch, that the next generation is always the most important, and that it's critical that whoever that next generation is understands that they're not the most important, that it's the next generation that's always the most important. So right now, if the next generation is the millennials, they're the most important, but the real, really the most important is Generation Z, but they're not the most important generation. The next, the most important generation is the one that comes after them. And I think that there needs to be more mentorship, more leadership, and specifically, as long as we're talking about social media and cell phone addiction, for as long as we're going to have people that have their cell phones up on their desk and who are going to be interrupting their meetings for by checking email and checking their social media 
and even posting their own and then turn around and say, well, yeah, but this generation does it that much. I think that's piss poor. And you and I have been in meetings where I say, okay, this is going away. And, and I'm holding my cell phone when I say that. And if I'm leading the meeting, I'm, I'm setting the culture for the group and I do it in my company and I'll do it on retreats or other organizations I'm with. I ask everyone to put the cell phone away that we're all present together and also relaying every single time we do that, the why behind that, to be able to bring people in, in, to an understanding of where they're seeing the value for themselves, as opposed to just, there's an old guy that doesn't do the things that we do and doesn't get it. Yeah, that's interesting. I really like that focusing on the the next generation. I think it's important to, we got to light the fire of, of passion for IVF into the next generation. Something that's really helped me in my master's program, we've learned a lot about the history of IVF which like I said, it's only 40 years old. But when you hear day one, how they started the years of struggle and struggle, and then how they overcame it, like, that's where it's really fascinating. It's like, man, that's just impressive. Like, it really is super impressive. But I think, yeah, I think the older generation does have an opportunity to pass on that passion, that innovation. Being an embryologist, in my opinion, is like the coolest job. It's so fun. It's so rewarding. You get to work with your hands. You get to feel successful. Like what you do matters. And where I've worked, they have done a great job of passing on that passion. I think this country is full of great embryologists. I think all of your clinics out there have great embryologists in there. I don't know if it's the nature of work that that brings in just great people, but I swear I haven't met an embryologist where I was like, you're not that cool. Like they all are so into it. They come to conferences and they interact. And even the generation that's close to retiring, they're still asking questions of, you know, how can we improve this? Where's the next technology? Yeah. So if we could get that, the next generation, the millennials, the the Gen Z, the, to feel that, that passion. I mean, that's, that's, we have a great opportunity for that. I think millennials are, they're really intelligent and they have access and they understand technology. You talk about social media and how we, social media is becoming more and more prevalent in the fertility field of like interacting with, with patients and getting that education out there. That's a huge bonus with millennials and they understand how to use that tool. So that passion that you described, that's where the focus is in the next generation always being the most important and successfully passing that torch, whether we're talking about the IVF lab or the clinic or any other part of society. It's on the focus of that passion and sharing it and educating properly and dropping as much of the superficial criticism as possible because every generation has criticized the ones before it. Every generation has oh, yeah. criticized the ones after it. Some of that criticism is valid and some of it is superficial. And to the extent that we can eliminate the superficial as much as possible and be principled in our criticism so that we're focusing on the actual value, then it's more about 
passing on that value, the true intrinsic value, as opposed to the criticism that someone can't receive because they think, well, that's just someone that that doesn't get it. And to the extent that, you know, that passion that you described of the wonder of the IVF lab, to the extent that you can do that, Sean, you're going to have good people working for you forever. Yeah, definitely. That was something at PCRS. When we did the the breakoff sessions in the lab, that was one of the great talks uh, by Bill. I think his last name is Veneer down in San Diego. He talks about how he has he has 18 embryologists, so a big lab. And he says, my turnover rate is really low. And then he gave points about what he does to, to keep his lab happy. And I think that's another topic worth diving into is how do you keep your lab staff happy? That can be tricky. I, I think some clinics may think their lab is kind of full of divas because they, they kind of get a lot of complaints from them. But it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning that your lab is full of wizards behind. The, they're not really seen throughout the day. And so clinics are seeing more and more how important it is to validate your lab, to to hear the complaints, to hear the problems that they're having, to keep them to keep them happy because big cities, especially like San Diego, New York, where there's lots of clinics within miles of each other. Like if your embryologists aren't happy, there's lots of opportunities everywhere. Well, beyond that, because let's talk about you saving the IVF lab, Sean, you, Sean Reed are saving the IVF lab for the world. It is that as these doctors retire, you're bringing the, Generation Z into the IVF lab in a way that they care at a personal and vocational level about advancing the field. How do you do that? I mean, have you been doing it of of taking the time to to show people, or or maybe it's a question of what really inspires you, so that we're focusing on that that this is what people are being educated and brought into so that it becomes something that they couldn't help but be interested in if that is where their inclination takes them. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's gold stars and pizza, right? That's, that's all we want. Do we um, want gold stars and pizza? Some people want gold stars. and so A lot of people want gold stars and pizza because that's universal. But some people actually want to read the book. And some people yeah. want to read the book because it's a really freaking good story. And sometimes people want to read the book because it's been introduced to them in a way where the characters make sense and the plot is relevant and the setting is worthwhile to explore. So what is that for the IVF lab? Because if it's just keeping people happy with gold stars and pizza, that just means higher salaries and benefits yeah. and things that could be applied to any job and therefore could be lost to any other job. Well, I can tell you what has worked for me, what's given me the drive and passion. And that is seeing the patient side. That is something that labs significantly miss out on. We, when we see patients, they're usually unconscious or they've taken a volume for their transfer and we're in their room for five minutes. Like we don't get to hear 
their backstory. We don't get to hear their struggle. We're not in there during the new patient visit. Heck, we don't even get to be there when they get the phone call that they have a positive or negative HCG. So I've made it a point to expose myself to the patient side. I've gotten involved with the infertility resource program here in Utah. I'm on the advisory board. The the movie, was it called One More Shot on Netflix? Holy cow, everyone needs to watch that movie. We, we, we just is, had Maya on the podcast during National Infertility Awareness Week and talked about the same thing. Man, she, yeah, that movie is so good because you see that that really raw, just rough side of, of infertility. When you know, because they're filming when they get like phone calls, like a negative HCG, and <laughs> the the person giving the phone call, they they gave it and they said, "All right, have a nice weekend." And her face was like, "Are you serious? Like you just crushed my world. Have a good weekend. Okay, thanks." And that's the side that you miss out on, especially in the lab. And so for me, when I when I expose myself more to the patient side, that has made me so much better of an embryologist because on a busy day when on the lab side you all you see is you know patient names and egg numbers you're able to slow down and say okay this is so much more than 20 eggs that i need to do ixion this is somebody's probably couple year long struggle pain finances fear and it makes you slow down and always do your best i think that's something that's been really overlooked in clinics is showing your your lab staff that that side of what we're doing is we are helping people have babies at the end of the day like it's not just doing ICSIs and freezing embryos like you're making a huge difference in someone's life that is how we pass the torch to the next generation how the torch is properly passed from any generation that is doing anything that is valuable and there will always be cultural differences that may impede that that may need to be addressed and mitigated to the extent that we can share that and seeing the patient side that starting with the why of this is what we're doing part of Mm -hmm. that in as you explained was done through digital media (laughs) you know you saw that you saw that story to that extent in a way that even you as a person that works in the lab, but certainly even someone in the clinic that wouldn't be able to see without all of that storytelling power throughout digital media. So mm-hmm. as things are added to our technological repertoire or different social behaviors change, the ones that are important are the ones that communicate the timeless value. The others that aren't important are the distractions. And as generational leaders, it's important that we help the next generation discern. And we can only do that if we're being principled ourselves. And also, if we're doing it properly, there's probably things, and and if we're really focusing on the value, there's probably things that, that that generation does want help with, you know, and acknowledging that, you know what, I know a lot of people want to, to be cool on Instagram. But this is really what we're doing here. Take a look at this and showing them the why of exactly as as you described it. That takes time and it takes effort. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's why torches are often not passed successfully. And because it's, it's easier to just criticize the next generation superficially, as opposed to discerning, this is the superficial, this is the valuable, and I'm going to take the time to communicate the value, to build the rapport so that the mm-hmm. person that I'm passing it to understands that I am not repeating the superficial that they've heard a hundred times, that it is in their best interest. And it is about a meaningful, lasting value that they would want to not only have passed to them, but to pass on. That's hard. That's that's exactly what you and I are mapping out right here, as opposed to saying they're lazy, they're entitled, they're all of those things can be true in a vacuum, but it's much easier to say that than to go through the hard work of making something last. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's about taking the time. And I think that that is a big struggle in IVF labs. Every lab is going to be really busy and to take the time to train it can be hard to find that time. That was something that Bill at PCRS talked about was they have days where they block out time for education, where they will instruct their lab staff or even the clinical side on how things work. Like you have to take that conscious effort, take that time, hit pause and go, all right, let's learn some stuff. And that's where you can really start ingraining in them that, hey, we're, we're making babies here. We're making human babies. This is this is an important stuff. I think it doesn't matter what generation you are. Movies like One More Shot, everyone can feel that movie. Like I don't care who you are, you're going to connect with that movie. Like it's going to it's going to break your heart. <laughs> like it really does. It's it's a great. If it movie. doesn't melt your soul, you don't have one. <laughs> exactly. What are what are yeah. the stakes if we don't pass the torch successfully in the IVF lab? <clears throat> is this something that we are in danger of not being able to have enough personnel to fulfill the services and or our clinical success rates in jeopardy because if, if we don't do this properly. I think it's like nature. It will always find a way. We'll always find the lab staff. And I think success rates will always be pretty dang good. Where I worry about is where the innovation is going to come from because fertility has become fertility treatment has become so big. It's got a lot of focus from more the the industry side. And I think a lot of the, the innovation has come from industry and that inherently isn't a bad thing, but it does bring in bias because industry stands to make money off of, you know, different new technology or new equipment. And we've actually seen that in the in the recent past with tests that seem to be promising that turns out to not be all that great. The mitochondrial grade in particular, that's the only one I would talk about. So we do PGTA, right? The embryo biopsy. And then people started to say, well, there's something else we can look at. We can look at mitochondrial levels and then that will help you pick the best normal embryos to transfer. The problem is the people that were putting out these studies and saying, oh, you got to be looking at mitochondria. You got to do this. This is the next hot thing. They were the labs that were standing to make money off of this test. 
And just recently, a few weeks ago, we got an email, I won't say who, just from a lab that was doing this test. And they said, basically, we've gotten more results back. And it turns out that this test isn't actually improving outcomes like we had anticipated. So for the time being, we're going to discontinue use. So that's where I worry about where the innovation is going to come from. This field is aggressively moving forward at all times. It's such an exciting field. I think it's an exciting time to be in it. I think it's been exciting since since day one. And I would like to see more of the innovation coming from us little people in the lab. But again, finding the time to do that in a busy clinical lab, it's hard to do. How would you want to conclude about what you want to see for the future of the IVF lab? Ooh, man, I just feel so passionate about what I do. I love it so much that I want to always be surrounded by passionate people. That's why I love going to conferences because everybody's passionate about it. I love sitting down, like you said, put the cell phone down and connect with people to connect with the same problems that we all face. Like, hey, we have this problem. And then someone goes, hey, we had that problem before. Here's how we fix it. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's genius. We got to remember it's about the patients. It's about the embryos. Yeah, this field, this field is going to be, it's always going to be successful. I think we're always going to have good people in our labs. Like, love your lab, man. They're awesome. Trust me. And to the extent that we can communicate that passion and build rapport and communicate that to incoming generations, we'll always be able to have that success. And I hope that people listening are renewed with a sense of optimism that they're a part of that and that that work is meaningful. Sean, thanks for coming through on developing this thought process with me because it's a complicated one, because it's a really important one. Thanks for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Oh, thank you, man. This is great. Thanks. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.